Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. I'm your host, Alyssa Cox, and here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. And this season, we're taking a critical look at the structures within an organization that support or hinder change. And to open the season, I want to spend a minute reflecting on what we consider to be organizational norms, where some of those norms come from, and how we identify norms that aren't serving us anymore. My guest today is Darren Dorsey, an experienced anti-violence consultant and trainer, and the co-founder of Rooting Movements, a consultancy that helps organizations connect with their mission and foundational values and implement them internally and externally. Now, I first learned about Darren's work from his podcast miniseries, Resource on the Go, on anti-Blackness and the movement to end gender-based violence. And one of the things that really struck me from those conversations was the idea of organizational structures being rooted not necessarily in the organization's objectives, but rather in history. So Darren, talk to me a little bit about that idea. Yeah, definitely. And they, of course, come from all throughout history. So I can talk a little bit about how some of our organizational structures are derived from plantations in the United States where enslaved people were working in the fields. Um, and we can also talk about how some uh, structures and policies often come from the Industrial Revolution, which was actually quite influenced by plantations themselves. And so there's a number of different, like you said, archetypes within our organizations that we sort of just assume are the way that things should be. So, um, and sometimes these things do get questioned or challenged. I think there's been a lot of um, conversations around a four-day work week recently. I think 10 years ago, if you brought this up, people would very much sort of not react in a very validating way to that conversation. But it really does beg the question of where did this expectation of a five-day work week and two days off come from? And is that really the best way for us to work? A lot of, you know, my experiences in the anti-violence movement, specifically the movement to end gender-based violence, um, and so I've worked with organizations that did um, 24-hour crisis lines, 24-hour hospital accompaniments, where um, if somebody experienced an assault and they went to the hospital, we would the organization will provide an advocate to show up 24 hours, seven days a week. Does it make sense for that advocate to be working nine to five or, or eight to four or eight to five? Not always, but that is often how these organizations that, I, that I've worked with and that I continue to work with are set up. And so then you have advocates that are doing overtime and, and whatnot. And one work that I would like to point to is Caitlin Rosenthal's, Dr. Caitlin Rosenthal's work, Accounting for Slavery, where she actually takes a really, really close look. She's a historian. And so she takes a close look at plantations, the history of enslavement, and how plantations were structured, and found that slave owners and plantations implemented quite advanced accounting management tools. They accounted for depreciation, standardized efficiency, all of these various techniques to manage their land and their slaves. And so a lot of those processes 
then just became a natural part of our economy. You know, when we look at the history of enslavement, we know that those plantations, their interests, their value was, we don't see this person as fully human. They are an object to us. They are our means of production. And our goal is to get the most production that we can out of them. This has continued to be uh, the way that, that many of our organizations are structured today. If you have a sales company and you you have employees that do sales, your goal is to ensure that you are not investing more in that employee than they are returning in sales. Um, and that might work for certain industries or certain companies, but the problem is when that becomes the default and we implement this approach when it comes to Again, for example, anti-violence organizations or organizations that are looking to do social change when somebody's job is to do crisis services and your approach is to ensure that you don't invest more in that employee than what they return to you. That's not a very sustainable model. But in my experience in nonprofits and social change organizations, it very much is the default. So what I want to key in on here is sort of this idea of an ROI on our people, right? And there is, I think, to your point, right, there is a dehumanizing element to thinking about the financial return on individual people, thinking about people as assets or inputs to a process exclusively. How should we be thinking then about the value that's delivered by our people and by the people within our organization in a way that continues to advance the mission of the organization, but perhaps doesn't have some of the same reductive qualities that we use when we think about getting the most out of a machine. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think part of where this comes from is that there's a dichotomy. There's a dichotomy between uh, management or leadership or even admin and then there's the, the workers or the folks who, who produce. And often the assumption is that this previous group of the management, the leadership, their job is to monitor, to control the workers and the producers because there's an inherent belief that those workers don't want to do their work or that they need to be kept in line. And I think the first step to changing these dynamics is to to really humanize those workers and to make assumptions that counter those those ones that I that I talked about as far as them not wanting to work, not wanting to produce. Instead, we can assume that if people's needs are met, that they want to work and they want to drive your company or your organization towards success. If their needs are not met, that may not be the case, or there, there there might be other needs that come before that. You know, for example, if someone's not making enough money, if someone doesn't have enough time off and they're not able to be fully present at work, if they're not really able to invest themselves in the work and their work feels like a competitive interest to their well-being, they're probably not going to, to do that well. Um, so I think when we assume that if we meet people's needs as employers, as organizations, they will work well, that is a starting point to changing some of the assumptions that creates inequities in the workplace 
and that serves as a barrier to to social change. And so we've had previous guests on the show talk about compliance culture, right? A culture that assumes that people are cogs in a machine and need to be monitored for work output versus commitment culture, where you've got your fundamental assumption about the people that are working in your organization is that they are aligned with with your mission and they are driving your mission, almost giving them the latitude to drive the mission in a more independent and self-directed way. How do we think about making that shift and potential resistance that we might experience and that we might we might get from leadership as we look to try to work differently and work in a more committed and and an empowered way. Well, I think the the starting point is recognizing that that people are not perfect. Um, organizations are not perfect. And so when we make this shift, oftentimes what happens is the first time an obstacle comes up, um, we might get really reactive and say, hey, this is because we've made this shift. This is because we've given employees too much freedom or, or respect or, or money, et cetera. And it's, it's really important to recognize that things will always come up. Our job is not to ensure that they don't come up. Our job is to mitigate that and ensure that, that whatever our, our mission is comes first. One example, and this feels like a nitty gritty example, but I, I promise you it connects. One example that I've seen quite a bit involves mileage reimbursement policies. And I think for folks at, at larger for-profit companies, this might not be a common occurrence. They might get a company credit card to, to pay some of their expenses. When it comes to small nonprofit organizations, it is very common. You know, we've got outreach workers, we've got advocates, we've got educators going out in the community, sometimes rural communities. I once worked at a nonprofit in Texas that served seven counties that we would have to drive to and whatnot. And I would rack up anywhere from often 500 to 1,000 miles per month to be able to, to serve those communities. And I had to, to front that for the organization. I had to put the gas in my car. I had to drive those miles, put the wear and tear on my car. And then at the end of the month, I would you know, receive a reimbursement for that. What I often work with organizations to do is to actually provide travel advances so that workers are not put in a place. And I should remind you that a lot of these workers that I'm talking about that are out in the community doing outreach, et cetera, are not making a lot of money. And so this is costing them, this is impacting them. And so what we can do is we could provide travel advances and trust that if something comes up, that person gets sick, they're not able to go travel, the travel gets shortened or something, um, we can have processes in place to to change what that travel advance looked like or to, to take some of that money back through our, our accounting processes. But there's often this reaction of like, whoa, 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 whoa. somebody might steal money. Somebody might decide they don't wanna work here anymore and, and they, they now owe us $500. Now we have to go through this process. Now we have to um, potentially get legal involved and it's going to be really challenging to collect that money. The fact of the matter is once every five years, once every 10 years, depending on how many employees you have, that might happen. The alternative is, the benefit is that your employees are having their needs met. And so for five years, 10 years, your employees are having their needs met the return on that is going to be a lot greater 
than potentially, you know, somebody running off $500 once every few years or something along those lines. And I will just say that I have had that experience where I'm traveling, you know, I'm uh, taking a flight to a different city, a big city, um, staying there for five days or something. And I have to eat out, you know, and so I'm spending $20, $30 a meal and that adds up really quickly. And so a lot of folks have this experience of having to go to the local 7-Eleven or the local mart or something and getting sandwich ingredients to put in the fridge of their hotel room to be able to eat while they travel because they otherwise could not afford to do that. That is a burden that we should not be putting on our employees, on our staff, and the people that are working towards social change. So that's just one example of sort of a policy that is often just the default. Okay, you you drive, you you travel, and you come back, and, and we'll reimburse you at the end of your paycheck or at the end of the month or something like that. That can actually cause quite a bit of harm to an individual and can cause, thus cause a, quite a bit of harm to an organization. And so I always, again, recommend travel advances for organizations to shift this relationship and to not make this assumption that people are going to run off for money or people don't respect the organization. The fact is they want that job. You know, they they need that job. And generally speaking, things will go fine. So as organizations then take a step back and say, okay, we need to take a look at the way we're organized, make sure that we're organized in a way that helps us drive our mission forward, how do they start asking those questions? Where should they start looking for aspects of their organizational structure that are holding them back and elements of their organizational structure that they can shift to really unlock their potential? I think the the first one of the first steps that an organization can take is looking at transparency. How is information shared? Um, do people have access to the information they need to do their jobs? Are budgets available to staff or are they being provided this information piecemeal? I think a lot of organizations default to a need to know uh, model of information sharing as opposed to a model of information sharing that says the burden is actually on management to produce a reason that somebody shouldn't know something. And there's, there's plenty of reasons why we might withhold information. You know, it might be personnel issues, it might be disciplinary issues, something like that. But again, a lot of our organizations sort of just default to management needs to know. And unless somebody really, really comes up with a case as to why they need information, we're just going to keep that to ourselves. Management will decide, you know, management's going to have conversations about our salaries. Management's going to have conversations about our policies, et cetera. That's a place where organizations can really look to what is the informal culture around information sharing. And that is definitely a starting point to shift. Beyond that, organizations can really look to their leadership structures as well. Who is held accountable in the organization? Is it just the workers or is everyone held accountable to um, the same standard? I work with organizations where I'll sort of assess their policies and their practices. And what I'll often find is that their director or their leader actually can't be held accountable. They can choose to hold themselves accountable, but through the policies, through the practices, they 
are not actually held accountable. Grievances actually just go straight to them. That in itself is an inequitable model. And will you know, it's never going to be a place that invites employee empowerment. So those are some places that people can start, but it really is a holistic process of all aspects of the organization, from the culture to the practice to the policy, et cetera. Talk to me a little bit about accountability structures, right? What does it mean for our senior leaders to be held accountable, similar to the way that we hold our frontline workers accountable? Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is transparency and, and information sharing. We can't hold our leadership accountable if they're operating behind closed doors all the time. So it, it definitely starts there. But ultimately, organizations need to operate in a way where accountability goes multiple ways. And what we often see is that it goes one way from the bottom to the top. But the fact of the matter is when you employ folks, you should be accountable to them. You should be accountable for maintaining a healthy work environment, for paying them a a fair wage that allows them to to get their needs met, for you know your own job and and what you're supposed to do in terms of the leadership of the organization and whether or not that's getting done. And so this can happen in a number of, of different ways. Again, it's a holistic approach. So if you just go in and you change policy, but you don't change culture, change practice, or even change structure, then you are probably not going to be too successful. So I know a lot of organizations, as we have more and more conversations and interest in and and higher value for diversity, equity, and inclusion, I've, I've seen a lot of organizations in the past few years implement a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or some role along those lines. That's one step that an organization can take to really structure this into the the organization. However, I will also say that a lot of organizations have taken that position and made that person a coordinator, made that person a middle manager where they can't hold the, the leadership accountable. And so that's what you want to avoid is thinking we want to think critically about what is our, our structure, what is our policy, what are all the aspects of our organizations, and how can we have accountability that goes every single direction. And so then as we, we're thinking about driving employee empowerment, driving transparency across the organization, driving aligned accountability all the way up the hierarchy, Where do you see and what kinds of results do you see in terms of organizations that get this right and their ability to both sustain change within their organization, as well as drive change outside of their organization? Because I think social enterprise and social change organizations are certainly trying to drive change, very transparently trying to drive change outside their walls. But I would argue that for-profit organizations are also supposed to drive change outside their walls. They're driving change in consumer behavior, in buying behavior. Uh, They're driving change elsewhere that we don't typically think of as social change. But help me understand how you think about and the kinds of results that you see when organizations do crack the code right on enterprise organization and their ability to make and drive change. So what I often see uh, in organizations that do this well is that there's an inherent sustainability in it, which allows the organization to get past some of these issues and focus on their work. 
Um, so as opposed to having waves of turnover, having waves of conflict, having waves of issues in an organization, oftentimes these things become rare occurrences. It doesn't mean that they don't happen, but the organization in itself can be more sustainable and focus on its goals as opposed to, again, having this dichotomy of, of the workers and the leadership. And then there's that invites conflict, which I've seen in organizations that have traditional structures. There's a cycle. There's a cycle of, you know, for example, new leadership coming in, honeymoon phase, and then um, some of the issues being brought to the forefront. And then we have conflict. And then we have some turnover, whether that be the workers, whether that be the leadership. And this often just keeps on happening over and over and over every few years. When an organization is able to be sustainable, when an organization is able to keep its workers, not just its leadership, but its workers around for a long time because it provides an empowering place to work and you know the right benefits, the right pay and all these things, they're able to look to work as the mission that we are trying to accomplish and ensure that we go back to that on a regular basis, especially when conflict or issues arise. Well, thank you, Darren. I know I've learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Now, if our listeners want to connect with you directly or learn more about Rooting Movements, how should they go about doing that? Um, they could just go to rootingmovements.org and they can learn all about our consulting firm. There's a contact form where they can contact us and find a time to chat. I'm also on Twitter, Darinator with an, a zero instead of an O. And Rooting Movements is also on Instagram where we post pretty frequently and just kind of tell people what we're up to. Perfect. And we'll be sure to include those links in the show notes. Listen, I really appreciate your time and perspective here today. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own teams. If any of our listeners would like to bring these kinds of conversations to their own organizations, you can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com to schedule an intro call. Thanks again, Darren. Thank you.